Hello, Farm D Nation. My name is Derek Delaney, and I am excited to introduce to you the Farm D Money Podcast. I understand it can be very difficult finding time in a busy schedule to educate yourself on becoming better with your money, especially when you consider all of the crazy stuff that happens in our financial world that can impact your finances. That is why I created the Farm D Money Podcast so pharmacists and their families have a place to go to get current and impactful information about their finances straight from a certified financial planner. We'll talk about topics ranging from finance, economics, investment management, taxes, and so much more. I look forward to you joining me on my journey of helping pharmacists become the most financially savvy type of doctor there is. You're listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Welcome to the Public Health Pharmacist Podcast with Dr. Christina Madison. Dr. Madison's mission is focused on spreading knowledge about public health to create better communities. The Public Health Pharmacist is a member of the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. My name is Dr. Christina Madison. I am the host of the Public Health Pharmacist Podcast, part of the Pharmacy Podcast Network. And today I have another extraordinary guest with me today, Dr. Joshi. Um, who is uh, in primary care, but is doing amazing things with medication-assisted treatment and pain management. I'm so excited to welcome him today. Um, And we're going to just dive right into some questions. So Dr. Joshi, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, a little introduction, and then we're going to dive into some pretty exciting questions because you you reached out to me and uh, you were speaking my language. So first and foremost, thank you for having me. Uh, my name is uh, Dr. J.K. Jochi. I'm a physician who practices out of Northwest Indiana area, primary care. We really like to focus on innovations and in healthcare management, and that involves patients who may have substance use dependency, pain medications, in addition to their overall primary care medications, and really just very unique, complex cases. And as a physician treating these patients, I realized that you have to be very entrepreneurial in nature. And part of that requires effective communication. And one of the ways I came across you, Dr. Madison, is that you are an effective communicator, not just over social media, but just over many platforms, including at Pain Week, really just kind of espousing the importance of effective communication, effective leadership when it comes to the role of a pharmacist, the role of a primary care physician, that in reaching out to you, I felt that I had to share my story and really figure out ways that we could work together. So thank you for having me. Yeah, I just think that's such an amazing, like, you know, example of the power of connection, right? And just, you know, reaching out to people, if you feel like you have common interests and common goals that, you know, don't, don't think about it in the manner of like, okay, I don't know this person, or I'm not connected to somebody that they're connected to, that that love and that passion for providing good patient care and, you know, centered patient care, right, where you're really focusing on the needs of the patient, and then also 
also focusing on the needs of the community, um, I think really helps um, to make everybody a better provider. So I just really appreciate the fact that you reached out and, and, you know, it was my first pain week and I just, I had such a great experience and really enjoyed all of the speakers. Um, you know, the, the keynote, I think that really resonated with me um, was that first night when, you know, they were talking about stigma, talking about, um, you know, how there are still people that are, you know, being, their therapies are being de-escalated without actually having a plan, right? And they're actually looking at the data showing that people who are being managed appropriately and are stable on their pain management, that you should not try to somehow magically get them to decrease their dose. You it's know, kind of like compulsory seems- tapering schedules that seem to be yeah. in vogue these days. Yeah. It's crazy, right? Like, and then also just this fact that, you know, the example that the, I think that the keynote made of a, a sickle cell patient, right? So why is it that a young black male that is, has sickle cell disease should not be believed as much as somebody who is their counterpart, but that's just a different ethnicity, right? Like they've been dealing with chronic pain their whole lives and, you know, there is a biological reason for that. Why would you not want to make sure that this person was comfortable? Like that just seems, it seems derelict, right? It seems just horrible that that would be something that's still going on. But unfortunately, we know that these determinants of health and these health disparities um, disproportionately impact people of of color. And um, I really appreciate the fact that you are innovating and that you're standing up for primary care, taking on these very difficult topics, um, because I do think that a lot of primary care docs don't want to take on pain patients and they don't want to talk about people who have substance use issues because they feel like it's a liability. It, it is. And uh, effectively what happens is that you're transacting the direct patient care for the legal liability. And before I kind of paraphrase it in that manner and kind of get into the underlying logic, I want to share an anecdote with you specifically about uh, a sickle cell patient. So being in Northwest Indiana, uh, a relatively segregated society for a Midwestern state, uh, there is an overwhelming African-American population in Gary, Indiana. Uh, the surrounding towns tend to be predominantly Caucasian, and there is a very stark, stark demarcation between Gary, Indiana proper and the surrounding towns. So often when I see an African-American patient for the first time, I kind of know that they're coming from Gary, Indiana. And one patient in particular was a sickle cell patient. And he had developed a certain emotional empathy to me as a physician because he had been rejected over and over by pain specialists, by hospitalists, emergency medicine specialists. When he would present with acute chest syndrome or any sort of acute event secondary to a sickle cell crisis, they simply looked at him. They didn't look at the medical conditions. They didn't look at the medical literature, even though he would go to hospitals where he had an established medical history of imaging reports of blood tests. They simply looked at him as the individual. And one of the things that we start to realize in healthcare is that healthcare for all its complexity is still beholden to the simplicity of biases. 
that we have the data, we have the understanding of the medical fundamentals, but we are beholden to the simplistic associations we make when we see somebody for the first time and we allow that to overwhelm over care management. And oftentimes that doesn't manifest as overt discrimination. I don't look at somebody and say, I will treat you X and I will treat you Y. But these subtle implications, the subtle biases that manifest without you overtly knowing about them lead to situations where I'm now presented with a young sickle cell patient who's developed this emotional empathy after years of being rejected, physician after physician, clinical care setting after clinical care setting, to then come to me and say, I understand you may not trust me, but here is the medical records. Here is the information for why you should trust me. And can you please continue my care? And that framework really hits me hard because it starts to understand what are we doing in terms of the individual direct patient care relative to how we are stigmatizing certain patients and certain medical conditions at a broad level. Yeah, and obviously you know, inherently pain and, and the care of peoples with chronic pain is undoubtedly stigmatized. And unfortunately, both our implicit and implicit biases come across. And it's so interesting that we chose to start talking about you know, a sickle cell patient because September is actually sickle cell awareness month. And so that wasn't purposeful, but it was something that I just wanted to mention because we do still have, you know, lack of awareness around the disease and, and how it impacts, um, you know, individuals. But one thing I did want to, you know, just touch on a little bit with you is, you know, uh, this thought process around um, maybe primary care uh, providers, maybe not wanting to take on, uh, patients that have experienced um, substance use challenges. And so, um, you know, my patient population, which we've discussed, uh, is primarily um, sexual and gender minorities, which uh, overwhelmingly, unfortunately, have, um, you know, health disparities um, that include mental health challenges, substance use, uh, HIV, sexually transmitted infections, uh, right, um, more likely to experience homelessness, um, lacks that family support. And I just, when you said that that patient came to you and said, you know, you may not trust me, but this is, this is my story. Yeah. I feel like that really hit home for me. Like I really resonated with that because so many of the patients that we see are people who have had such a, an unfavorable, um, you know, experience within the healthcare system that it's almost as if before we even start treating these people, we have to assume that we have to treat them under the auspice of trauma-informed care. And we have to address and identify and acknowledge and affirm that they are coming from a place of previous trauma. And that that alone may be the difference between them staying in care and them not staying in care. No, that's a great way to phrase it. So first off, thank you for phrasing it. Trauma-informed care. I think that's a very important way to phrase that because it alludes to the issue of trust and it alludes to the issue that I mentioned before I went into the anecdote of essentially transacting medical care for legal risk. 
essentially what happens as a primary care physician, I know that now I am beholden to the legal liability of any prescription that I write. So if I see a patient and I may write a certain pain medication, despite following the 2016 CDC guidelines, I know that the perception of that prescription is not just based on my evaluation of the patient. It's based upon, as you can allude to, the pharmacist perception of that prescription and the patient's family member's perception of that prescription. So now you're dealing with the whole legal construct upon which you are facing a certain unknown, unfamiliar, non-clinical risk. So as a clinician, you start to make decisions that sway in that direction. And a lot of primary care physicians have simply said, I choose to avoid that broader legal risk despite my direct patient experience. And it's unfortunate. It's unfortunate because what you're doing is you're essentially disenfranchising the direct patient experience for a broader public legal risk that you may encounter. So how do you then essentially balance the two? Because you can't just focus on the direct patient experience and you can't focus just directly on the legal policy that takes place. So it's a certain balance. So what you alluded to, kind of this trauma-informed care leads this balance to go away from emphasizing direct patient care to emphasizing the legal policy. So you are, as a physician, and, and me in particular, and I will admit to this, I have had certain situations where when I would be obligated to initially trust, I am now obligated to initially distrust. And it essentially changes the initial engagement with the patient because now I'm asking the patient to verify why I should trust him or her as opposed to implicitly trusting him or her to begin with and then letting the patient care continuum dictate whether that trust is justified. Wow, that's really powerful. I I, I hadn't thought of that in those terms before. And, and maybe that's because I'm an eternal optimist. And so whenever yeah. I whenever I have patients, it's like, I believe you. Like, that's like the number one thing. It's like, you tell me you have pain. You tell me you're, you're depressed. You tell me you have a need. I'm going to believe you. And I'm not going to think that, you know, what, wherever this need or this perception for assistance is coming from is not nefarious in nature, right? Like, obviously, you know, there, there's always going to be an instance where maybe somebody may be seeking therapy and that might be diverted. But ultimately, the reason for that diversion is typically because of lack of basic needs, right? Housing, food, stability at home. Right. And when you lack those things, it puts everything else in disarray. Right. So one of the things that we do often at our clinic is that we ask about, you know, do you feel safe at home? Do you have, a, you know, a place to sleep? Do you have enough food to eat? Right. Because if those are the things that you're worrying about, all the other stuff becomes less significant, right? So it's like my care of my chronic medical condition or, you know, the medication that I'm supposed to take every day, it doesn't become a priority because you're just trying to survive, right? And I feel like until we can get, get a better handle on raising everyone up in the population, 
we're not going to be able to address people's need for health care and then also stop blaming the victim, right? Because these, these people are a victim of their own circumstance because you and I both know that the number one predictor of how healthy you are is your zip code. And they didn't choose that, right? I mean, it's years of things like, you know, uh, banking practices, redlining, lack of, 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 of ability to have, uh, you know, generational wealth, all of these things directly impact how healthy and well you are. And we know that COVID-19 has just thrashed all of that, right? We now yeah. see a decline in life expectancy that we've, we've not seen a decline in life expectancy in how long, and it's dramatic. And it's we GDC just, life uh, expectancy. Yeah, it's three years for people of color. Yeah. And it's like one point, I think 1.6 years for non-Hispanic, non-African-American. Um, but that's insane, you know, that now we are at a point yeah. where our ability to not just have a long life, but a good quality of life is being directly impacted by circumstances that really should not be an issue, right? Like everyone should be able to be vaccinated. Everyone should be able to get the same level of care, same access to care, but that's not what's happening, right? Because depending on what state you live in, you may have a political construct that is not allowing for you to go and do a job safely, not to mention the fact that you might not be able to have a job, which means that now your financial um, prospects are directly impacting your ability to get preventative care, chronic care management, or even to get to a doctor or and I'm probably going on a on a tangent, not to mention being in rural areas and not having access to broadband Internet. So yeah. now you have no access to any kind of job. If you did have yeah. access to a job now, you can't get, you know, on on the computer to try to find a new job. Right. And that may be impacting your children. That may be impacting your spouse or your partner all of these things have just sort of like bubbled up to the surface and just been, you know, enhanced even more yeah. than they already were before COVID. Yeah. COVID-19 made apparent what was already present in the healthcare system. And many things that what you alluded to can be referred to as, as you mentioned, social determinants of health. Uh, some of the things you had mentioned disproportionately affect the African-American community. Some things that you had mentioned astutely affect the rural Caucasian community. So we have to be mindful of how these disproportionalities affect different communities and address the healthcare to ease the burden of those disenfranchisements. Now, these are a lot of complicated words, so let's just simplify it very quickly. Let's simplify it down to a very quick example, and then I'll kind of discuss a little bit why I presented the example in this way. What's in an urban desert the best way to improve healthcare? Either provide a organic grocery or provide yet another hospital. Well, many people would say, hey, let's build a hospital. But in reality, the grocery store that provides the organic 
high quality, low cost foods may provide an equal benefit. So the reality of the situation is how we perceive what healthcare to be determines what we perceive to be success in healthcare. And as you alluded to, there is a rising death rate in the United States that exceeds other high wealth nations, particularly European nations. And while both Europe and United States are increasing in their death rates, the United States is increasing at a faster rate. And we largely attribute that to the social determinants of health and the disproportionality imposed upon certain patient populations. What we need to do is identify those gradient components. What is that rate limiting factor that's inhibiting good quality care in this region and in that region? And one of the factors that you alluded to is urban versus rural settings. And by proxy, because of the way the nation is constructed, racial proxies. But I think what we need to do is delve into first principles thinking on healthcare disparities. And what we'll start to realize is that healthcare disparities is more subtle than overt racial discrimination, more subtle than overt gender discrimination. It's essentially a component of a multifactorial complex form of discrimination. And let me give an example of that. As an African-American woman, you experience discrimination that is without a doubt, whether that's overt or subtle, whether that's manifest or covert, you experience it. And your experience can be one, biologically derived based on the biological constraints of your health imposing certain discriminations. The second component can be the cultural constraints of your African-American heritage now imposing certain constraints upon how you are perceived in society. There are two very different, fundamentally different forms of discrimination, one biological in nature, one cultural in nature, yet they both contribute to the disparities in the healthcare outcome. And what I would like to challenge the healthcare world with all our vast knowledge, all our vast understanding on pharmacology, clinical pathophysiology, can we discern the nature by which we introduce bias and subtle discrimination, not overt discrimination, but subtle discrimination down to its most principal components to understand the component factors that lead to multifactorial complex discrimination that we see today. I think the the first way that I would respond to that is acknowledgement. Yeah. Right. We have to acknowledge it. Like that's the first, like, you know, not to, you know, say here's the big pink elephant in the middle of the room, but that's it. You know, um, I have been researching a presentation that I'm going to be giving on um, uh, mortern- maternal mortality um, in particular and in, in women of color. And, you know, one of the things that I realized is, you know, the acknowledgement that we talked about before of this historical trauma, right? So we have to, we have to acknowledge that the foundations of the healthcare system that is in this country was built on the backs of enslaved peoples. So we just have to acknowledge it first, first and foremost, just say it, say it out loud. No, no one is saying it's wrong, right. Or the other way or this way, it's just, it's a fact and you need to acknowledge it. And so when I have people who come to me and they say, well, I don't see race, I don't see a color. It's, it's very, um, 
it's, it's disingenuous. Hurt, it's hurtful. It's hurtful to me because you're not, you're not acknowledging my lived experience and you're discounting it. And I feel that as healthcare professionals, that's the first thing that we need to do is we need to acknowledge and we need to affirm people for the fact that their lived experience is going to determine how they approach their health and their wellness. Well, there, and, there's, two, there's one thing to that, and, yeah. I, and I apologize for interrupting with you on this. Lived experience is very important to explain the patient experience. But let me ask you this, and I present it in a way to kind of challenge you to kind of uh, look at the opposite angle of what you just mentioned. Uh, lived experience is, in many ways, anecdotal evidence. Those who are these quote unquote policy experts, those who look at medicine through the sterile lens of their ivory towers of academic medicine, they may say lived experience is rife with bias. While I disagree, I acknowledge that they have a certain validity in thinking in that way. What I like to do is I like to contextualize that lived experience relative to the data. In your experience, how do you reconcile lived experience with data, with broad healthcare disparities, and try to reconcile the two within a healthcare professional framework? So I try not to make assumptions, right? So yeah. when my patient comes to me, I'm not going to assume that every other experience that they've had within the healthcare system has been negative. And I'm also not going to assume that every other experience that they've had within the healthcare system is positive either. Right. I have to ask them, I have to find out what are their goals? What do they want to get out of that, that visit? Because sometimes as healthcare professionals, what we view as important may not be the most important thing for them. And I see this all the time with my, um, my individuals of trans experience, because in their instance, the most important thing to them is their transformation and their transition. And even though I may think that the most important thing is, you know, their cardiac issue, that's not the most important thing to them. Their most important thing is making sure that they can consistently get their hormones and they can continue to feel affirmed. Right. Yeah. And so it's, it's, it's meeting patients where they are. It's finding out what they need, what they want, affirming them, and then acknowledging that they may have had a lived experience that was traumatic and that has led them to the point where they may self-medicate. Right. Abuse medications. And that's that a trauma-informed care. Experiencing real pain. And that is the thing that I think is really important to understand. And that's what you alluded to with the trauma-informed care. The question I had to you in terms of the perception of pain, uh, it's both a symptom, it's both a diagnosis, and it's a perception of the mind. When you're dealing with patients who are undergoing a transformation, and before I continue the question, I just wanna ask you a question that may be a bit ignorant, but I think it's important for those who are listening, may not be familiar. When instead of saying trans, is it more appropriate to say LGBTQ, or is it appropriate to say trans in that set? No. So I, I was very deliberate when I set up person of trans experience. Okay. So it is appropriate so, in that setting to say trans. Yeah. 
Okay. Yeah. So, a, so I don't per- actually say trans. I say a person of trans experience. A so person of a trans experience. There's a difference. So if somebody who affirms as female, then I would say a woman of trans experience. If it's somebody who affirms as male, I would say a male of trans experience. You always want to say the gender that the person affirms because that person is inherently that gender, right? Understood. So they are fully a man or they are fully a woman. So that's the way that you need to describe it. <laughs> Okay, thank you for clarifying that because that's very important because one of the big things is the nomenclature and how you speak when you're discussing the issues because how you speak reflects how you think. So thank you for clarifying that. And I wanted to make sure that the listening audience also understood that it's not an issue to ask how you should discuss or how you should portray what you're trying to explain. So person of when it, if you when at all are doubting, yeah. if you don't know, just ask, say, I typically sure. say, hi, my name's Dr. Madison. My pronouns are she, her, and hers. You know, what, you know, how do you like to be referred to and what's your preferred name? Understood. And the reason why I asked that, and the reason why I even brought that issue to begin with was alluding back to the whole component of biological based discrimination versus cultural based discrimination. And when you're dealing with a specific medical cultural, sociological intersection that the trans experience entails, you're dealing with so many complex layers of experience and of discrimination. So how do you parse it out? Do you try to parse it out into its fundamental components or do you take it all as the one experience that it is? You take them as a whole and you know that Unfortunately, they are going to have more challenges just because of who they are and the fact that they want to be their authentic selves. You just have to take them as as the whole everything, the whole package. Wow. You don't you can't you can't parse it out. <laughs> and again, that we know that those individuals and 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 individuals that consider themselves to be sexual and gender minorities are more at risk for um, you know, having substance use challenges or potentially self-medicating or having challenges with mental health that may lead them to using substances that maybe are not prescribed to them or right. um, experiencing more pain or experiencing more discomfort. Um, And that is something that we have to address. And I think that, you know, understanding that and, and, and really getting to the heart of the fact that people just want to be believed. Like when I, I, I think I said this, um, you know, when I was doing my recap for pain week, but, you know, I'm going to quote Maya Angelou. She says, when people show you who they are, believe Believe them. them. (laughs) Believe them. And that's what I think we need to do as healthcare professionals. We need to believe our patients and allow them the space and the time to be able to communicate to that, to, to us, to the best of their ability, right? Because it's, it may not happen to the first visit may not happen to the second visit, but once you've established that, uh, that rapport, they will be more likely to open up to you and they'll be more likely to tell you what's going on at home. Right. Exactly. And that's why when be you be more honest about their pain yeah, and their substance use open dependency. An honest conversation, because if you don't tell me that you have to, you know, that you haven't disclosed, you know, that you, um, 
that your sexual orientation to your family and you're living in a household that if it gets out that you are having relationships with the same gender, that that means that you could potentially be kicked out of your house. What does that mean when it comes to your health? Right. And that, and that's something I need to know about because like we need, we need to know as, as your provider, you know, if I prescribe you something, if I'm giving you prep because I know you're at risk and then your family member finds that and then looks it up, how is that going to impact whether or not you're going to have a safe and stable place to live? Yeah. It, it definitely impacts both short-term and long-term mortality. And one of the key things that I find, especially dealing, as you alluded to, patients with pain, patients with substance use dependency, until you get to a point where you can have an honest discourse about what they're going through outside of the traditional clinical encounter, you're not really going to understand the full scope of how they internalize the care provided. You can delude yourself into thinking, hey, I'm not going to discuss this. I'm going to paternalistically impose my clinical views. But until you get the broader scope, the broadest scope on how the patient internalizes the care provided, you do not fully understand how the care is being implemented, which means that you're being derelict in your duty as a physician. Because the care you provide is reflected upon the care that is received and internalized by the patient. It's very much an experience that goes two ways. And so as you astutely alluded to, when you validate a person's existence, when you validate a person's experience, you then gain the trust. And that trust is paramount to all other components. So for example, let's take the almighty urine drug screen which is in the primary care world is like the end all and be all when it comes to prescribing certain controlled substances. So if a patient passes a urine drug screen, they are of course a compliant patient. Of course, they're not abusing their medications. They pass the urine drug screen, but if they fail the urine drug screen, oh my God, what am I going to do? I can't prescribe you any medications. You You've clearly, them. you've demonized them, but you are simplifying the complexity of patient care through the rubric of a urine drug screen. Never mind the fact that the patient may have needed to take a certain extra medication. Never mind the fact that the patient may not have been able to afford medication and therefore was not able to have it in their urine. You are now judging the complexity of a patient and all the complex experiences that a patient may go through through the rubric of a urine drug screen and then judging your decision-making off of that rubric. Now, when you phrase it in that way, you realize how absurd that sounds, but it's not seen as, as absurd because, as I mentioned before, we as primary care physicians are transacting medical care for legal liability. And because we think a certain way, we behave a certain way. And what I love what you're doing as a pharmacist, as a public health advocate, as somebody who is dealing with disenfranchised populations and really empowering and giving them a voice is that you recognize communication is paramount to patient care. The experience is paramount to patient care. And I challenged you for a reason to speak on your lived experience because I know how important it is. And I want people who are listening to understand that the lived experience you're going through, the lived experience you communicate with your patients, that I communicate with my patients is medicine. More, in fact, more medicine than 
the data than the clinical protocols. And I love that you alluded to Maya Angelou because I read her book, I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings. She is an amazing writer and an amazing poet. And she has a quotation in which she states, people will forget about what you say, they'll forget about what you do, but they will never forget about the way you made them feel. And it's that experiential that really comes down to the heart of medicine that I think you are alluding to. And I'm really glad that you're advocating for that. And I would encourage you, keep speaking on that. As a pharmacist, it's important that you continue to speak on that because you need to help us in the medical community reorient it to why we became physicians in the first place. Wow. Well, this has been such an amazing conversation. Thank you so much for your time today, Dr. Joshi. Um, if our audience wants to find you, where can they find you? And then uh, a little birdie told me that you might be having a book out coming soon in 2022. So if you want to tell our listeners about that, um, that would be great as well. Well, thank you for mentioning that. Yes, I have a book called Burden of Pain, in which I incorporate principles of behavioral economics and uncertainty principles into our current understanding of pain and pain management and how that has impacted our understanding of substance use dependency. Uh, that is going to come out in May 2022. But if you guys want to get a hold of me, either as a physician or as just a voice to talk to. I'm readily available. I have a line available for anybody and everybody to reach out to me. You can call me at 219-301-2624. That's 219-301-2624. And yes, I will answer any call or respond to any text directly. And that is me who's responding. So please, by all means, I value the patient engagement. I value the patient communication. So do not hesitate to reach out to me if you want to discuss anything related to your medical or non-medical conditions. I will help you in whatever way I can help you in whatever is the appropriate capacity. And you're also active on social media as well, right? I am, yeah. You can find me on Facebook. You can find me on LinkedIn and on Twitter as just like you can find uh, what you're dealing with with the public health pharmacist and Dr. Madison and all the things that you're dealing with, you can find me as well. So please do not hesitate to reach out to me. What's your handle? It is a daily remedy one. Fantastic. So thank you again so much for your time. And, you know, I applaud you for what you're doing. And, uh, you know, your patients are very lucky to have you. Well, thank you. I appreciate your time. Time is our most precious asset, and we thank you for spending your time with us and Dr. Madison, the public health pharmacist. Learn more at thepublichealthpharmacist.com.